Most any fighter you talk to will tell you that MMA is not an individual sport. It takes thousands of hours by coaches and teammates to prepare for that 15 to 25 minutes in the spotlight. As iron sharpens iron, so too does having full teams of world-class fighters working and winning together. So today we're going to take a look at 10 such squads who were completely crushing the competition on a large scale. These gyms were taking belts and setting records in multiple divisions, cohesive units going on unprecedented runs. For however brief a time, these 10 teams ruled the MMA world. I'm Tommy from MMA on point and this is 10 times fight camps absolutely dominated the sport hey. number 10 city kickboxing while there are certainly a few other dominant gyms that could have made the list, Rufus Sport, for instance, had a very similarly successful run. Consideration should be given to City Kickboxing for what they've been able to accomplish in the last few years because this is not a gym in the United States or Brazil where there's a massive talent pool. What Eugene Behrman and Doug Vinny have been able to do since 2007 in Auckland, New Zealand is truly remarkable. The gym and Behrman receiving numerous of the year honors in 2019. At present, the small team has produced seven UFC fighters, two of which are currently champions, of course, Israel Adesanya and Al Alexander Volkanovsky, and two more who are top 10 ranked fighters in Dan Hooker and Kai Kara France. Volkanovsky's dethroning of the featherweight King Max Holloway, while controversial initially and in the rematch, still remains an incredible achievement. You're talking about a top 10 pound for pound fighter in the world. Alexander now sitting sixth on that list. And of course, possibly the hottest star in the sport right now, Israel Adesanya, pound for pound number three, two title defenses under his belt at middleweight now, made defeating the unbeaten Paulo Costa look easy, will potentially be competing for the light heavyweight title next to earn double champ status, CKB came out of seemingly nowhere in the last few years, but even if all of their team were to fall off completely right now, the run they've had absolutely warranted a spot on this list. Number 9. Caesar Gracie Fight Team Nick and Nate and Jake and Gilbert. The Scrap Pack, as they're known, aka Caesar Gracie Jiu Jitsu Stock 209, motherfucker, what? Sorry about that. Caesar Gracie Fight Team may be small, but what they lack in numbers, they more than make up for in an epic run from 2008 to 2013. First, Jake Shields would win the Elite XC Welterweight title, which he would vacate after two defenses, then move up to middleweight to win the Strike Force Championship he would hold until vacating after defeating Dan Henderson. That was the night of the Nashville Brawls. Gentlemen, we're on national television. Jake would go on to fight GSP at UFC 129 and and come up short of the welterweight strap. Gilbert Melendez was already Strikeforce welterweight champion by 2008, and but for a loss to Josh Thompson, he would avenge twice. He held that title from 2009 to his eventual signing with the UFC, coming up short in his champion versus champion bout with Benson Henderson. Nick Diaz won the inaugural Strikeforce welterweight title in 2010 and kept it until he joined the UFC that next year, defending twice and having one of the best single round fights ever with Paul Daly. This would culminate in a fight with GSP. Just like Jake, he came up short. During this era, Ultimate Fighter winner Nate Diaz would also fight Benson Henderson for the lightweight title and meet the same fate as Gil, but some good stuff happens for him later. I'm sure he'll be fine. Number 8. Nova Uniao for a brief time, one gym held the number two and number three pound-for-pound -pound fighters in the entire world under their banner, and that was the powerhouse that is Andre Pedaneris' Nova Uniao in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. The gym prefers to keep only a handful of members as their main focus at any given time, and that kind of attention paid off massively as Jose Aldo and Henan Barrao tore through the sport from 2008 to 2015. Barrao racked up a 24-fight unbeaten streak spanning five years before entering the WEC in 2010. After two victories, he would be absorbed into the UFC and begin his 
quest towards bantamweight gold. Five straight title fights from 2012 to 2014 landed Hennon as number three on the pound-for-pound -pound rankings, officially being promoted to the 135-pound champion after capturing interim gold against Uriah Faber and defending that title twice. Barrow's 33-fight win streak would finally be broken by TJ Dillashaw at UFC 173. During this time period, his teammate Jose Aldo was making the argument for greatest featherweight ever. After five straight wins in the WEC with five finishes, Aldo took the 145-pound title from Mike Brown and would hold that championship as it was absorbed by the UFC for nine total defenses before famously losing to Conor McGregor at UFC 194. To dominate two weight classes so thoroughly for so long, there was no way Nova Unyao was going to miss our list. Number 7. Shootabox Academy Pride FC was the premier MMA organization in the world for most of its run, and nobody had a stranglehold on the promotion's middleweight division like the legendary Shootabox Academy team. The Curitiba Gym became a hotbed for Valley Tudo fighters in the 1990s. By the early 2000s, the likes of Vanderlei Silva, the Hua brothers, Anderson Silva, and Gabriel Gonzaga were all training and competing under its banner. Anderson would end up leaving the gym in 2003 to train with Noguera brothers, but the legacy of Shootabox in Pride is unparalleled. The team was built around Vanderlei, who from 1999 to 2005 went on a 20-fight unbeaten run in the promotion's middleweight division, capturing the 205-pound title and winning the 2003 Grand Prix Tournament. He had the most total wins in Pride FC history, the longest undefeated streak, the most knockouts, the most finishes, and the most title defenses. That wasn't enough, though. Shootabox had arguably the second-best fighter in the world at that weight class in Shogun Hua, who from 2003 to Pride's eventual folding never lost at middleweight, ending his run with 12 straight wins, 10 finishes, and the 2005 Middleweight Grand Prix Trophy. A tournament he won after defeating Ricardo Arona, Silva's only lost in the division in Pride before losing his title to Dan Henderson. The gym lost most of its key members by 2007, but for more than half a decade, Shootabox ruled 205 pounds. Number 6. Team Quest a little gym that Randy Couture started out of the back of a fitness center in Grisham, Oregon, alongside Matt Lindland and Dan Henderson, would become a stronghold for badass wrestlers honing their skills at mixed martial arts. Couture would fight under the team's banner for the vast majority of his impressive career. His time there would see 11 total title fights, an interim light heavyweight win, two undisputed light heavyweight championships, and a heavyweight title he would defend twice. By the time he made his career comeback to score his final championship, he had already moved on to Extreme Couture, another successful gym he founded. During that same era, co-founder Dan Henderson would win two rings King of Kings tournaments and capture the Pride Welterweight and Middleweight titles. Those two alone would make this gym more than prestigious, but it should also be noted that several other members had middleweight success. Matt Lindland competed for the UFC title at 185 pounds in 2002. Nate Quarry did the same in 2005. And of course, Chael P. Sonnen, the P is for excellence. He would defeat Paulo Filio in his final bout in the WEC, a man considered at the time to be one of the best middleweights in the world. Not bad for a little gym in the back of a fitness center. All jokes aside, they did expand eventually. Number 5. The Lion's Den they are the precursor to all US MMA teams, the first to truly mix styles and prepare fighters for the direction the sport was heading. The origins? Simple. Ken Shamrock needed sparring partners as he was already knee-deep in fighting, and the Lion's Den was born. The influence the team had on the sport and its lineage of fighters truly helped to shape MMA in the 90s and early 2000s. Their domination unprecedented. 11 different champions, multiple times King of Pancrase, three UFC tournament winners, and three of the promotion's first title holders. Ken, the superfight champion, Frank Shamrock at light heavyweight, Jens Pulver, who trained with the team before MFS, the first lightweight champion, Mikey Burnett came up just short of being the first welterweight champion in a split decision loss to Pat Militich, Marie Smith, who joined the team to learn to grapple and in exchange taught kickboxing strengthening the gym, heavyweight champion at UFC 14, Guy Mesker, UFC tournament winner, King of Pancrase 1998. When the King of the Cage was still relevant, the team had two champions with Vernon White and Joe Hurley. As the sport began to morph into what we know it as today, it was the lion's den that was at the 
the forefront, an absolute force in the gym's prime. Number 4. Militich Fighting Systems If the Lion's Den is the precursor to modern MMA gyms, Militich Fighting Systems was the next step in the evolution. Their domination of the sport in the US was staggering from 2001 to 2008. In 01, the gym's founder, Pat Militich, was finishing up his UFC Hall of Fame career, losing the welterweight title after four defenses to Carlos Newton at UFC 31. That same year, Jens Pulver, Matt Hughes, and Dave Manet would capture UFC gold at lightweight, welterweight, and middleweight, respectively. Pulver would successfully defend his title twice before being stripped over a contract dispute. Hughes would go on to be the greatest welterweight of all time before GSP came around, and Manet would drop the title to Marilla Bustamante in his very next fight. Three title defenses into Hughes' tenure, another member of the team would capture UFC gold in Tim Sylvia. This would begin a run that off and on included the heavyweight title, up to his final fight in the promotion, a bout with Minotaro Noguera for the interim strap in 2008. Robbie Lawler would also capture his first title, the Elite XC Middleweight Championship during this era. Jeremy Horn would challenge Chuck Liddell for the 205-pound strap in the UFC, and remember the ill-fated IFL? Both of its seasons were won by the Quad City Silver Backs, a team coached by Pat Militich. It was hard to find a division that didn't feature an MFS standout during that era. Number 3. Jackson Winklejohn Known for their intelligent approach to the fight game, some might call it sport killing. This guy is a fucking sport killer. Jackson Winklejohn out of ABQ New Mexico has had a massive collective of high-level fighters come through their doors over the years. Without question though, their peak era is from 2008 to 2015, which is a long run, but the case to make here is relatively easy. In 2008, you have Rashad Evans and George St. Pierre under your banner, and they're both world champions. Now, GSP wasn't there full-time. In fact, he often trained at TriStar in Canada, but his relationship with the gym and Greg Jackson specifically means he is absolutely included in their legacy, especially in that era. A few years later, the rise of John Jones begins, arguably the greatest fighter of all time. The reason I chose 2015 as the stopping point is because it's from there that JBJ starts having issues that affect his ability to remain in the cage. It also allows me to include Holly Holm, who is a completely homegrown Jackson Wink product that defeats Ronda Rousey to become the second ever UFC Women's Bantamweight Champion. Another notable from this era, John Dotson, who won tough and fought twice for the flyweight title. And you can't forget the gym's mainstays like Cub Swanson, Carlos Condit, Diego Sanchez, Donald Cerrone, Clay Guida, several titles shots amongst that group as well. For about a seven-year period, Jackson's submission fighting was on fire. Number two, American Top Team. Dan Lambert's absolutely juggernaut of a gym has been training some of the top talents in the sport since 2001. But in recent years, just by sheer volume alone, the fighters coming out of Coconut Creek are absolutely dominating the sport. There's a reason why they won Best Gym three years running at the World MMA Awards starting in 2016. If we just take the ATT squad of the last five years into account, there's simply no comparison to any other gyms during the same period. Amanda Nunes, the greatest female fighter in the world. Joanna and Jacek during her reign as UFC strawweight champion. Dustin Poirier, former interim UFC lightweight champion, former UFC welterweight champion Tyron Woodley, who yes, does his camps at Rufus Sport, but is still very much a member of the team. Will Brooks during his run as Bellator lightweight champion, Daniel Strauss, Bellator featherweight champion, Kyoji Horiguchi, double champ Bellator and Ryzen, PFL champ Kayla Harrison, and that's not even mentioning top contenders like Jorge Masvidal, Colby Covington, and Yoel Romero. Seriously, this team has been a victory factory in the last five years. It's a monster, and it shows that despite their enormous roster, fighters are still getting the attention they need in training to reach the highest levels of the game. Before long, everyone in the entire sport might be training under the ATT banner. Number 1. American Kickboxing Academy 
It was so hard to choose between ATT and AKA, but Javier Mendez has created one of the truly elite MMA gyms in the United States. American kickboxing is unmatched in the modern era of the sport. Their longevity as key players in several divisions is pretty staggering. In 2010, Cain Velasquez would become the UFC heavyweight champion for the first time. That same year, Josh Koscheck would challenge GSP for welterweight gold. Cain would slip up and lose his title in 2011, only to regain it the next year. But team middleweight standout Luke Rockhold would become Strikeforce middleweight champion during that same period, defending it twice before entering the UFC. Velasquez would reign until 2015 when he lost the title to Fabricio Verdum in Mexico, but again Rockhold would emerge as champion, this time in the UFC. His time at the top shockingly ending that next June at the hands of Michael Bisping. 2015 also marked the start of Daniel Cormier's run as light heavyweight champion, leading to his time as the double champ. Longtime member John Fitch would have a career resurgence capturing WSOF gold, leading all the way to a draw with Rory McDonald and Bellator for the welterweight title. And of course, along the way there in 2018, Habib Nurmagomedov would set the sport on fire with his rivalry with Conor McGregor during his lightweight title run, which may or may not still be ongoing. Two of the best heavyweights of all time, a double champ, the world's pound for pound number one, and arguably the greatest lightweight ever. A near decade with multiple fighters on top. What more can you say? Huge shout out to the newest member of our team, Lawton Vierkan, for masterfully piecing this video together. The casual can be found on Twitter and IG at Lawton underscore Vierkant, where he's probably laying down some sweet tunes. A big, big thank you to Ben Rosette, who provided that sweet tune you heard in the intro. Check out his music by clicking the link in the description and go give him a follow on his Instagram and Twitter page at Ben Rosette. Thanks for watching. Please give us a like and subscribe. We've got three new videos or more for you every single week. Let us know what you thought of the video in the comments below. Follow On Point MMA on Twitter and have yourself a wonderful day.